This week I read an article about a growing, not, not old, not, not new, but a, a growing field of therapy called somatic, somatic body experiencing. A way of finding healing for emotional wounds by listening and being attuned to our bodies. Now most of us are familiar with counseling that focuses on the client talking out the issues that burden them. But this theory is that we live from the bottom up. Meaning that anxiety and trauma and depression is also the, our unhealthy responses to our life come to our brains from the neural circuits running through our bodies. Maybe you've heard of the best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is part of this movement, as well as groundbreaking research of Peter Levine and others who have been doing this work for decades. Many people who are practitioners, as well as those who have tried various types of therapeutic approaches, know that we cannot ignore the fact that we are soul, mind, and body. And that our bodies bear the full witness of everything that we have seen and felt and experienced in our lives. In a related thought, we could think about what some of our bodies endure as well as the goodness that comes from living in a physical frame. When you think about your life, think about what your body has accomplished. Athletic success, hard work, having children, comforting others, creating art, playing music, bringing healing, holding those we love, going on adventures, dancing with joy, climbing mountains, kneeling in prayer, serving our communities. But our bodies also go through a lot of pain. We fall down. We have surgery and diseases and grief and abuse, violence. So many bodies bear the hate that others have. We feel embarrassment through our bodies. Sometimes our bodies live in dire circumstances. But we also use our bodies sometimes to inflict pain on others and ourselves through striking out in anger, through gossiping, through turning away or leaving, through over or under controlling our food intake, using toxic substances, engaging in risking behavior. We are embodied people. We use our body for both honor and dishonor. We honor and we dishonor God and others and creation and ourselves with our physical form. We are created as an embodied people, so it makes sense that the servant of God comes to redeem humanity with something that we can understand. He comes in a body. Jesus could have saved us using any means possible. But he chooses to take on the sins of the entire world by having his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. In the flesh, Jesus experienced much of what human life is about and then chooses to submit his body to the intense savagery of the crucifixion. Our text today is Isaiah 53. Pastor Helen spoke so eloquently a few weeks ago about the suffering servant. And reminded us that when the people felt forsaken, they cried out to God. And God heard the lament of the people. And in love and solidarity, the servant is sent to help. 
And in compassion, the servant comes and feels the pain of the people. And then in an incredible move, the servant takes on the sorrows and the griefs and the evil and the wrongdoing in his body. Not just feeling the depth of the hopelessness and abandonment and sorrow, but choosing to do something about it. Not with might and force, not to show everyone how great he is. Not with a sword or wearing a gold crown or manipulating systems to get his way through oppression and greed. He changes the world by dying for it. This passage that we read today is all about the servant that takes on the brokenness of all of creation, enabling new life to occur. Now, this is the fourth of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And for the first audience who heard this, the identity of the servant was unclear. Pastor Helen also talked about that. Was it, Pastor, was it King Cyrus from Persia? Is it Israel? Is it a faithful remnant? Is it someone not yet identified who is to come? From previous servant songs, we know that the servant is God's chosen one in, in whom God delights and on whom the spirit rests. Before the birth of the servant, he was called to glorify God and restore the people, to be a light to the nations through whom God's salvation would reach the ends of the earth. So much has been written about this particular poem, and scholars have dissected it from an astounding array of angles. Maybe it might have been heard as a confession from the original audience. In the middle of two chapters, Isaiah 53 is where Yahweh gives hope to the exiles. But this passage might have felt like a somber, unexpected turn. This is a familiar passage for those who follow Christ. As such, it really feels like holy ground. The early church, hearing Jesus quote some of these verses, looked to this passage as a way to understand his ministry, his shocking death, and very surprising resurrection. In Acts 8, an Ethiopian man was reading this passage and not understanding it. And God sends Philip. And Philip comes, looks at what he's reading, Isaiah 53, and tells, tells him all about Jesus. And in response, the man says, what is stopping me from being baptized right now? So if I have wrestled with how to faithfully exegete this text in light of its context, as well as for how we clearly see the Lord in it, I've decided to mostly let the words speak for themselves. If we take Jesus out of the equation, no one has been able to figure out who fits this description in the time that it was, it, it was written until today. So as I read, I invite you to allow the Spirit of God to point out truths for you to hear and to be reminded of today. Of course, I'm going to say a few things about it. I'm a pastor after all. But I invite you to take a deep breath and allow these words to infiltrate not just your mind and your soul, but your body. Pay attention. Pay attention to how your body responds and reacts to these words, these beautiful and haunting words as I read them. The poem begins at the end of Isaiah 52 and then encompasses all of 53. 
Yahweh is speaking. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. Lord, your word is living and you are here. Help us, God. Help us to experience this passage. What do you want us to see and hear? 
today? Or do you want us to know the very core of our being? May we truly listen with all we are to you. Amen. There are five stanzas in this poem of three verses each. As we study them, you might want to keep your Bible open if you have it open so that you can continue to look at the words as I briefly talk about them. Section one, Frank. This last servant song begins and ends in a similar way, with Yahweh talking in a positive way to the people, calling this one sent as mine. Yahweh says, this is my servant. God assures the people how the one coming to them will act with wisdom. In this we surmise only goodness will come as a result of the servant's life because God is the one who is going to raise them up. Although initially many were taken aback by his appearance, ultimately nations and kings will be silenced. It is not clear in the original language. So much about this is not clear in the original language, but it does, we don't know what it means that the servant will sprinkle many nations and kings. Some translations go with the word startle. The servant will startle many nations and kings. The kingdom of God comes in a stealth and hidden manner, not with great fanfare, but in an obscure, quiet way. No one has ever seen a savior like this. But when they understand, words cannot capture what it means. It is all at once shocking and humbling. Stanza two. The second stanza is about how the servant is rejected. Yahweh is no longer narrating. Instead, it is a voice speaking for all the people. And the response to the one God has sent has gotten worse. More than being appalled, the people can't stand him. Yet this promised servant is the arm of the Lord, a body part, an arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord signifies power and promise of the Most High God. But this servant is not a magnetic leader or someone they would have chosen. He comes out of nowhere. He's a man of suffering. Now, a person who embraces suffering is not one that we typically want as a leader. No, no, no. We want the best, the strongest, the most well-spoken, the one who conquers and promises everything that we want. This person sounds weak. We hide our faces from those who remind us of our frailties and vulnerabilities. How can someone help us who walks in our pain but doesn't take it away? Oh, no, no, no. We want shiny, happy, uncomplicated lives. But suffering, suffering is how God displays his greatest power in the world. Look at everything that the servant endures here. Rejection. Pain, sorrow, shame, being despised, being thought of as nothing. These are words that the church needs to learn from. We who will do almost anything for people to like us or be thought well of. We need to follow the example of the God who doesn't care about his reputation or pleasing a rough audience. We certainly should remember how God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. So often we want the charismatic over the obedient. 
section three. Now it starts getting real, people. The servant doesn't take it personally when the majority despise him. He has a job to do. His job is to capture the sorrows of those that God longs to save. He came to capture and take our sorrows. But that's not what the people say. It appears that Yahweh has turned his face on the servant. Like Job's friend think, the servant is being punished somehow. He is afflicted. <laughs> that guy is afflicted with something. It's not my fault. And in these words, we hear others from the Gospels, if you are the Christ, save yourself. It's ugly words spoken to the one who came. The jeering criminal on the cross and others in the crowd making fun of Jesus, mocking him, putting on a crown of thorns and a robe. He saved others. Let him save himself. Whatever. As if. As if he's just another regular guy on a cross. But Jesus still responds with love. Even in such pain and agony, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know. The message here is how the blame belongs to everyone. Isaiah's community is clear about that, even if they don't know who the servant is. This one main difference between all the other three servant songs and this one. In the other three, the servant could have been Cyrus. It could have been a remnant or the nation of Israel. Here, that is not possible. Being punished for something they did not do, this servant is without sin, cut off from the people. This servant, this servant is an outsider. The servant has to be more than human. Pierced, crushed, punished, wounded, laden with every wrongdoing, every brokenness in creation for our peace, for our healing for the ability to re return from our wandering and come back to God. Stanza four. Here we see how the servant submits to death. Humans are like the sheep who have left the fold of God, it says. Yet this one was led like a lamb to slaughter, silently. Before the authorities, Jesus will not defend himself, nor will he dispute the action that they are taking against him. Where were the people? The people he helped. Where were the people who raised up in protest? What would we have done? Those whom Jesus championed and healed fade away when it matters. Sometimes we fade away when people are going through such pain and intensity and suffering. This reminds us we have a God who stays with, with us in it and expects the same. Innocent to the end, he died as the wicked do. So just pause for a moment because the enormity of the sacrifice being described here is overwhelming. We can't just skip past this. You have to see the great lengths that the servant goes to for the sake of others. And generations of people have wondered who this is and what is going on. And we respect that and understand that many are still searching and don't see Jesus here. 
However, there is one who could have done this, and I believe did do this. And in this moment, we who see Jesus stop. Just stop and acknowledge this gift. That Jesus took on in his body so that we don't have to. To have been freely included with God's people is a gift. We feel that. We feel that. And so we say, thank you. Thank you. Together, Lord, we offer you our praise. There's another aspect about this stanza I want us to think about. This kind of death makes it an imperative that we also don't turn away from suffering that we have to look at it. We have to look at the pain and the evil because it's so much around us. We have to look at it with compassion, asking what we can do. We have to look at it with hope, knowing that our Lord is there. We have to look at it, not avoid it, but face it like Jesus did. Last stanza. The song ends with Yahweh stating emphatically that the suffering of the servant is not an accident. We are to see the sacrifice as a purposeful offering for the sin of others. One quote I read this week said, The servant did not come to tell people what God wants. Rather, the servant came to be what God wants for us. What is being communicated here is how the painful struggle will be exceedingly worth it because many will be justified as a result. What humans cannot do on their own, which is to be made righteous, will be done for them. And the servant will be considered great, Yahweh says, because he poured out his life out unto death and made intercession for the transgressors. The text ends on a note of promise. All is not lost for the exiles or for the millions who will come after them. I added the million part. There'll be light in the darkness and life in death because the Lord has spoken. I was thinking how the type of suffering described here is the only thing that can absorb and erase the suffering in the world. God's way is the way of suffering. It reminded me weirdly about the tar on the beach. We had a friend who came and got tar all over their feet and was like, what is this nastiness on the bottom of my feet? No amount of scrubbing, no amount of soap, no amount of scraping with our fingernail will take it off. It takes a similar compound, another type of oil, to get it off. Only the suffering servant can alleviate the suffering that we have. So breathe in deep and pay attention to how your body has responded to this passage. Maybe you cringed at the graphic descriptions of what the servant has endured. Maybe you felt sorrow in your bones for what was offered on your behalf. Perhaps you felt anger for the unjust way the servant was treated, knowing all of us are to blame. Maybe you felt nothing. We are meant to feel the weight and the freedom of what has been done for us. And that is one reason why we remember Jesus' death by drinking and eating his body. 
the one who took our sins on himself, makes it a command that we are unified together in that action in his suffering. And one day we will raise to a new heaven and a new earth with our bodies fully restored because death wasn't the end of the story. The Savior was raised again and makes it possible for us to find new life here and to meet him when we pass from this earth. In the meantime, we proclaim that we are part of the body of Christ, together making up the church in the world, offering all that we are as a sacrifice, a response to the love given to us, an embodied life, an embodied death, an embodied resurrection because of our Savior. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.